Well, good morning. Today, um, in case this has passed you by, we're embarking on a new sermon series looking at the book of Exodus. It's a long book, as many of you will be aware, and we're not going to cover it at a single uh, series, at a single sitting, as it were. So what we're going to do is look at the first half, aiming, one, to cover plenty of ground in a relatively short time, two, to try and maintain the pace of the story in the way it was written, Three, to explain those extraordinary events of the story as well as we can in that original context. And four, to apply the lessons we find in these pages to our own lives, both as individuals and as a church. So it's not for nothing that I've wittily entitled this uh, series The Exodus Express. Uh, I was thinking of maybe Exodus Espresso. If you've ever been to Rome, you'll know how, um, how the people just, just go into these coffee shops and neck an espresso, and they get this buzz about them. So we want to give a real hit of, of Exodus to our lives. So it could be Exodus Espresso if you prefer, but I'm going to go with the Exodus Express, the choo-choo train image um, for the moment. We're going to be traveling through an Old Testament, early Old Testament landscape uh, at a really good lick. And there's only going to be a time to, to kind of point out some important landmarks out of the window as we go, oh, look, there's a... Oh. So it, it is going to be a whistle-stop tour. Ha, ha. Um, and I make no apology for that, because we can always go back and explore more later. And I, indeed, I do encourage you to both read ahead and read behind what we cover on these Sundays. So uh, try and be four or five chapters ahead in your reading. Um, before Sundays come along, because we won't always have time to, to read the whole passage, because we're going to do big chunks, okay? Um, and also, read behind. Just go over again the things. I mean, get yourself some, some resources and find out what it's all about. Uh, okay, yeah, the point of an express train is just to get there in a short time. And our destination is a shared understanding of what scholars like N.T. Wright often refer to as the controlling narrative of the Bible. It's a long phrase. It just means that this, this, this is a story of, um, well, I'll say what the story is to start with. It's a story of how God freed his people from slavery and formed them into a nation, which through his power would not only conquer and inhabit, settle in the promised land, but would also be a light to the nations, a people of God's presence, an example of how God wants everybody to live, everyone in the whole world. It's a vivid picture of God's plan for his people in every place and in every age. So there's a story that takes place at one particular point in history. It's also one that flows throughout the whole of history. And that's why, as we'll see later on, God commanded his people, Israel, to tell these stories to each other constantly, again and again and again, reminding each other of who they really are and what God has really done for them. If we lose sight of the Exodus, our worldview diminishes. It becomes both limited and selfish pretty quickly. Take the subject of salvation, which has been on the minds of all those engaged in the student mission a couple of weeks ago. Well, a lightweight reading of the New Testament might suggest that Jesus' great sacrificial death on the cross was all about just uh, delivering us from the consequences of our sin. But an Exodus view of the cross reveals that Jesus actually died not just to free us in some narrow legal sense from the judgment we must otherwise face, 
for our sin, but to set us free from our very enslavement to sin in our day-to-day lives. Mind-boggling enough for most of us, but it's still not all. An Exodus view of the cross also speaks of our, plural, adoption as God's firstborn son, singular, set free to worship him. It speaks of our formation into a powerful and harmonious nation governed by principles of justice, generosity, and grace, which will demonstrate the goodness of God to the entire world. It speaks of us becoming a people protected, guided, and provided for by God. It speaks of our becoming a people of God's presence, restored at last after that terrible separation that took place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And if we broaden our thinking to an Exodus view of the new life Jesus won for us on the cross, we find a landscape filled with dangers and trials, but also with strength and hope and the transforming presence of God. A short answer to the question, why should a Christian study Exodus, would be because it sets an essential context for everything, especially all the things we read in our beloved New Testament. The Exodus is the bedrock of Jewish thinking. Their understanding of of God, of nation, of self. And since the Bible is a series of books written almost entirely by Jewish writers, writing to Jewish people, it takes for granted an Exodus background, which few of us in this room really have. So it's all abroad the Exodus Express. Woo-woo. And let's read the first two chapters together. The main point I want you to see in this first section of the book is that God's answer to prayer is embodied in the form of a frail, all-too-flawed human being. In a witty catchphrase, God's plan is a man. So this talk should probably be called something like Moses, God's answer to Israel's prayer. And if you've ever had, I mean, people used to say, you think you're God's gift, don't you? And I say, actually, yes. (laughs) Because we are God's gift to the world, okay? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they're vigorous. They give birth before the midwife even gets there. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. And that's the halfway point. If you're feeling distracted, why don't you uh, take this opportunity to stand up, stretch, turn around, sit down again. Serious? Can if you like. No? You're with it? Okay, right. Chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi, it doesn't mean he wore Levi's, it was, it was a sort of clan thing. He, he went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young men walked beside the river. Her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses has grown up, he, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content 
to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner, a visitor in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Well, before we take our first steps into Exodus, it's a good idea to know where we're starting from, sort of recap on the story so far. So here's a very quick Previously in the Bible. <laughs> it, yeah, I was trying to sound like 24. Okay. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, is the story of many beginnings. Principally, the beginning of the universe. The beginning of humanity, the beginning of the breach between God and man. And also the, the very beginnings in Abraham and his first descendants of God's solution to that cosmic problem. Genesis opens with a simple but massive theological concept. In the beginning, God then tells how he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. A universe of perfect created things in perfect harmony with each other and with their creator. But before long, into that perfection creeps evil in the person of the devil. And rather than resist his temptation, as they should... Humanity, the very pinnacle of God's creation, falls into sin. And so loses not only its perfect relationship with God, who is love, but also their right to eternal life. In addition, the earth is blighted by their sins and no longer follows its previous ideal course. It now produces weeds and harmful plants. And we can probably extrapolate from that also sickness, natural disasters and all that nice stuff. But that's another story. None of that bad stuff is God's plan, Genesis teaches. It is the result of humanity's sin. Nevertheless, God is patient with the human race. In the days of Noah, he cleanses it from terrible depravity with a calamitous flood. At Babel, he scatters it over the earth when it's threatening to entrench itself forever in one place. And the story doesn't get too much further before he picks out one man the ancient, childless Abraham, who becomes Abraham, to become the father of a nation which will be a blessing to all the peoples on the planet. And you'll find that encounter in Genesis 12. And from this small inbreaking of God into a damaged and hurting world grows a family. God's whole plan encapsulated in a family. And Genesis traces its progress as it grows in numbers and maybe, just maybe, in its understanding uh, of God and his ways. Three generations later comes Joseph, technicolor dream coat and all. Sold into slavery by his brothers, he's now risen to high office in faraway Egypt through his God-given gift of prophecy. He accurately predicted a seven-year famine throughout the known world. And he's been appointed to establish storehouses in time to protect the nation's food supply. Eventually, he saves his whole family from starvation when they come to Egypt looking for food. And they settle there. 
And that is where the Exodus opens. Now that I've used up half my time setting the scene, let's take a very quick run at the text. Verses 1 to 7 identify the 12 forefathers of Israel, the nation that we're going to see taking shape before our eyes over the next 10 or 11 weeks. It quickly establishes the continuity of the story from Genesis to Exodus, so we know we're talking about the same family. Then in verse 7, it jumps forward a lot, many generations to the point where this, this tiny clan has actually become a very significant people group within Egypt, to the point where it's actually threatening, uh, they think, the integrity of the nation. Then verse 8 comes a shock to the system, a turning point in relations between Jews and Egyptians, a new king who didn't know Joseph. Now all of a sudden that helpful folk memory of Joseph's family as the saviors of Egypt seems to evaporate, leaving an uneasy realisation, verse 10 of the Egyptians, that, um, that these people are very, very numerous, they're very powerful, and they're actually rather different. And as often happens in this fallen world, the solution that presents itself to the insecurity of the king is not more dialogue, more understanding, more integration, which would actually help, but a harsh clampdown and a rigid separation. And, as so often happens in this fallen world, the oppression of Israel comes upon them in stages. Verse 11 introduces an element of forced labor, which grows uh, in uh, verses 13 and 14 to full-blown slavery. Then much worse is to come in verses 15 to 22. Two further stages of persecution. First, the Hebrew midwives um, who fail to obey Pharaoh and kill the boy babies at birth. And then then stage two, he commands his entire people to become murderers. Nice king. Nice people to know. Drowning the babies in the Nile. Now leave to your imagination his reasons for allowing the girl babies to survive. So chapter 2 opens on a a landscape of terrible suffering. A thriving Jewish population within Egypt has been cast into the most bitter slavery. And they're now threatened with mass murder and extinction within a couple of generations. And here Exodus now sets a pattern which we will see repeated again and again and again throughout the entire Bible. It firmly establishes in chapter 1 that this is the story of an entire people group. But at the center of events stands a single human being. And chapter 2 recounts in very broad brushstrokes his biography up to the age of 40. Imagine the fear and pain in his mother's heart as she places her three-year-old son, her three-month-old son, in his little coracle in the reeds and sets her daughter to stand guard, perhaps far enough away for deniability if anyone comes along. We can only guess at her motivation in choosing that unusual method of concealment. But by coincidence, or perhaps we should say by God-incidence, the child is found by Pharaoh's daughter. And clever little Miriam... Well done, girl. She just strolls casually up and asks all innocent like, oh, would you like a a Hebrew woman to wet nurse this baby for you? I know just the person. So by this stroke of childish genius, Moses gets brought up in complete safety in his own family by his own mother. 
This baby who should have been Pharaoh's victim and who will one day destroy Pharaoh's legacy grows up not only under his protection, but at his expense. But all too soon the day comes, in verse 10, where he has to go and live at the palace with his adoptive mother. Many years roll by between verses 10 and 11, during which time we must assume that Moses had all the educational and social advantages of being part of the royal household. There's a very useful commentary, by the way, on all this uh, in Acts chapter 7. But it becomes apparent from what follows that while he now looks like an Egyptian, he probably walks like an Egyptian, do you think? Yeah. We do that in pub church, by the way. Whenever anyone goes to the bar, they have to walk like an Egyptian. You should come. It's really fun. Friday, Friday lunchtime. Yeah. Though he looks like an Egyptian, as we read in verse 19, he still identifies with his birth family and with his own nation, his own people, the Jews. It may be that the princess was altogether sympathetic to the Hebrew cause. There's little hints of that uh, in her compassion on the baby in the first place in verse 6, but also in her uh, what appears to be a Hebrew pun when she names him in verse 10. Because Moses is not only the Egyptian royal name, you see in names like Tutmose and Atmose, etc., but it also sounds suspiciously like the Hebrew word for drawn out. Be that as it may, the name turns out to be prophetic because Moses was not only drawn out of the water in his infancy, but in adulthood, he will not only be drawn out, but will draw out his entire people from Egypt. Now, at this point, it's worth pointing out that if God had wanted to work things out this way, there was now an obvious career path for Moses from palace to throne to a peaceable exodus for his people without ruffling too many feathers. But God doesn't tend to work in the way we would expect. And he often doesn't work as quickly as we'd like either. Acts 7 tells us that Moses was 40 years old when in verse 12 he murdered the Egyptian for beating one of his countrymen. And just look at that incident. With his palace connections, surely he could have just told the guy, stop it, and he would have stopped. Wouldn't that be the end of it? Instead, we read that in an act of clear premeditation, sorry, it's the old copper in me coming out, he waited until the incident was over. Then when there was no one around, when even the guy who'd taken the beating had gone, he struck the Egyptian dead and buried him in the sand. Well, he thought he was in the clear. But in verse 14, it becomes apparent that there were witnesses after all. And worse than that, his own people aren't very grateful for his intervention. So if he'd um, imagined uh, himself a career as a kind of Egyptian Zorro, fighting for the rights of the oppressed, slipping out of the shadows in a cape, ha-ha, then he had another thing coming. Soon enough, he finds himself on the run from the furious racist pharaoh, and he's only got himself to blame. But even when it looks as if he's completely blown it, God is still shaping events. As Hamlet puts it, there's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough-hew them how we will. Or as the patriarch Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, you meant to harm me, but God meant it for good. Talking about him getting sold into slavery. So often what looks like a man-made disaster is actually part of God's loving plan. 
Verse 15 finds our hero, if indeed we can still call him that, hiding out in Midian, which is on the Arabian Peninsula. And that's where he comes across the daughters of this mysterious figure, the priest of Midian. The Midianites, like the Hebrews, uh, were, were descendants of Abraham. And we're not told so explicitly, but it seems to me there's no reason why some knowledge of the one true God shouldn't have survived completely independent of the Hebrew tradition in Midian. Reuel, also known as Jethro, seems to be in touch with God's wisdom, and that's going to become apparent later on. But I'll avoid plot spoilers. For now, it suffices us to imagine his frustration I find this very amusing, as you could probably tell in the reading, in verse 20. He's got seven daughters to marry off, okay? Now, in that kind of culture, that's, that's no light matter. Seven daughters to marry off, and then out of the blue, some mystery man, they called him the Egyptian, frightens off the local bullies single-handed and shows he's in touch with his feminine side by watering their flocks for them, and they leave him sitting out by the well. Well, come on, girls, get a grip. Of course he must come to dinner. Of course he must offer offer a bed for the night. And let's see if something comes of it. (laughs) Come on. So next we see Moses becoming a member of this household. Married into it, raising a family. Of course there's some happiness and fulfillment in that, up to a point. But he is now a double exile. He's excluded from his own people by his upbringing as prince of Egypt. And he's now excluded from Egyptian society as well, where he's a wanted murderer. A rootless, runaway he. But within him still, I would bet, burnt that same murderous anger and sense of of, of shame and sadness of verse 11, at the injustice suffered by his people. And we'll read in the next chapter that this, this slave child... This near victim of genocide, who became a a pampered palace boy, who became a murderer, now begins yet another life in yet another culture as a desert shepherd. At this point, the course of his life seems to be set. He's surely further than he ever was from delivering his people from slavery. But the career paths that God draws for us never tend to be that kind of straight line that we would draw for ourselves. We all know what a straight line is, don't we? Anyone can remember any primary school maths? Shortest distance between two points, right? But time and time and time again, I see in the lives of those who submit them to God, not the sort of zip wire uh, racing across a mountain stream, but rather somebody picking through the boulders in the, in the stream, trying to find a way, a much longer way, but a way across. That's just the way it works. The zigzag path across the stream is always longer than the distance from one bank to the other. And if you've ever done that on a hill walk, you'll know exactly what I mean. If God's plan is a man or a woman, and it usually is, then that woman or that man is going to have to be shaped and formed if he or she is adequately to lead for God and with God. God was preparing Moses. Perhaps he's preparing me for something with his wonderful sense of it. So, so God is preparing Moses, so it's 40 more years in the wilderness for you 
young lad. God is not so concerned about how fast we get there as he is with who we are when we get there. It sounded so wise, I think I'll say it again. God is not so concerned with how fast we get there as he is with who we are when we get there. During all those many days of verse 23, all 14,600 of them, Israel was still suffering. Their cry was still coming up to God. God was still remembering his covenant with their forefathers, and he was still watching them suffer. He could have intervened directly, but he didn't, because ever ever since Genesis 1, when he placed mankind at the pinnacle of his creation, he seems to have decided always to work through a human being. It didn't seem like it to captive Israel, but God felt their pain. And many miles away, he was gradually forming the man who would one day rescue them and lead them into the promised land. Like many self-starters who who seek to serve God and his people, Moses was highly qualified to to lead and strongly aware of a need. But, and metaphorically at least this pattern is duplicated with chilling frequency in in God's church. When he responded to the need, he only became a murderer and a fugitive, not a leader. Because God hadn't yet shaped him. What formed him to lead wasn't privilege and education, it was failure and 40 years of hard graft in the desert, working in a dead-end job for somebody else. Despite his many qualifications, he was in fact quite useless to his people until God had changed him thoroughly. I'm sure the process wasn't comfortable. So I hope that's helpful to all of you who are seeking career advice at the moment. In Exodus 1, God's people have got a bit stuck. What are they still doing in Egypt so long after the famine is over? This isn't the land God promised to their father Abraham. Has convenience maybe overcome calling? If so, it takes them a very long time to correct their mistake. But God knew, and God had a plan. And it's that plan we begin to see unfolding in Exodus 2. And the plan is a man. This book of Exodus, this controlling narrative of the Bible, of course, points to Jesus. To set us free from slavery to sin and death, and set us on the road to God's kingdom, Once again, the plan was a man. I believe some of you in this room are being shaped right now by God into the man or woman who will embody his plan for some suffering people somewhere on this planet. To you I say, don't shortcut his training program. Don't be surprised if he calls you to serve somebody else's vision before he allows you to work out your own. That is normal. Others of you may feel disqualified from serving God. But who could have been more disqualified than Moses was? Rejected by his own people with the words, who made you a judge over us? A murderer on the run? A failed leader, currently working as a shepherd? And, worst of all in today's eyes, an old man of 80 
Who could possibly be a worse choice to implement God's plan? If God chose Moses, why wouldn't he choose you? He sees in you qualities that you've never, ever, even for a second, glimpsed in yourself. And others of us perhaps feel that we're more like the ones crying out for help. For you, perhaps the answer will come in a moment as we lay hands on you and pray for you. After all, if God's plan is usually a man or woman, and it is, then what you need is probably not some portent in the heavens or some angelic visitation. More likely, what you need is a perfectly ordinary spotty Herbert like me to lay a hand on and bring a touch of God's spirit. In Moses, God quite deliberately chose and saved and shaped the worst possible person and made of him a man who has become a hero to millions over thousands of years. What could he do with you? What could he do with me if I let him? Why don't you stand and I'll pray.